0: I don't think before COVID that people were enamored with the fact that servers were climbing over people. Now add to that the sterilization and the sanitary concerns that we're looking at. I don't think I want anybody climbing over me to hand someone else a meal.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro. And uh, this week, we also are joined once again by Rebecca Pauly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Hey, guys. Hey, Ross.
2: Hey there.
3: So this week, we've got a special guest joining us on the podcast, uh, someone that Rebecca and I have known for many years. Uh, We've interviewed him several times for our stories. Uh, It's Larry Etter, the senior vice president uh, over at Malco Theaters, which is a circuit that operates over 350 screens in more than 35 locations here in the U.S. They're actually the eighth largest exhibition circuit in the country. Larry is also a board member and director of education at the National Association of Concessionaires. So he's used to sort of delivering uh, master classes all over the world on concessions and F&B strategy and it's really a big factor of the movie going experience, the, the concession side of things. And we decided to bring him on the podcast this week and pick his brain on how the concessions business is going to change post-COVID-19 for movie theaters.
1: Hi, Larry. I'm Russ Fisher. Nice to meet you. Good to have you on.
3: Well, thank you for inviting me, Russ.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So let's begin with pricing. Everybody has a conception of the role that concessions play in making a cinema economically viable. But I don't think that a lot of people know the specifics, and it's maybe different for different operators in different sectors. I personally just have the most elemental question, which is, why does a soda cost as much as it does at the movie theater?
0: When theaters were first- started, they had an agreement with the studios such that they would pay a specific rent or lease for a film. Theater owners really did not want concessions or food and beverage in the auditoriums because it caused clutter, trash, debris. They didn't want to clean it up. They wanted to keep the theaters pristine. But in the transaction with the studios and the negotiation on pricing it became evident that the studios were going to get as much as they could for their product, for their productions. And it left uh, the theater owner with very little money uh, in reserve to protect themselves and stay profitable. So they created a second revenue stream. The second revenue stream is concessions. And so they started selling popcorn, sodas, peanuts, candy, and in doing so, What they realized was that for years, people had been sneaking in product. We call it smuggling because they weren't selling anything. So now the theater owner was, in effect, competing with an environment that they'd already created. And that was allowing people to smuggle snacks into the theater. So from that standpoint, they had to make a decision. Do we charge more for the ticket so that we can cover our cost and less for concessions? Or do we get people in the building with a captive audience and then try to make that second revenue stream profitable enough? So it's kind of a chicken and egg kind of thing. Yes, theater owners could charge 2 or $3 for a soda, but they would have to charge $20 for a movie ticket. What we all have to understand is no one goes to a movie for two dollar cokes or dollar candy they go for the product on the screen so when the movies are great and people are attracted to the building we sell tickets once we sell tickets we then try to use those ancillary uh, opportunities to get as much revenue as we can out of the customer so the reality is do you charge more for a ticket and less for concessions or do you try to get butts in the seats and then do what you can with the people once they get in the building. The other thing that gets lost uh, or forgotten is that for 110 years, uh, movie theaters are busy typically 48 hours out of the week from Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. You know, our occupancy is very, very high. 75% of our business is done in 48 hours for the entire week. And so we have to make enough revenue in 48 hours to support seven days a week operations. You know, including utilities and security and janitorial supplies and everything else that goes into running a a facility. And you see the same thing in football stadiums and zoos, arenas and concerts. They get one shot at it. A college football stadium might have seven events or eight events a year. And let's just assume that one of those is a snowstorm or a rainstorm and you get half the attendance for one game. All of a sudden, you've lost, you know, 10 to 15% of your revenue opportunity. So, all of that kind of goes into, you know, the process of building a budget and that's what we really do. We try to build a budget that says, this is the amount of money we need to earn, then manage the expenses against that revenue. And this is what we can kind of expect, you know, kind of at the end of the year. And is it worth doing business or not for that kind of revenue or that profit?
3: I think that's an interesting point. And another thing that I think that's forgotten when we go into a movie theater is that we're in the hospitality industry. When you go into a hotel or when you go into a a restaurant, you get different points of contact with staff on the hospitality side. Many times there's a tip involved. When you go into a movie theater or these out-of-home entertainment venues, you don't really have that tipping culture associated with it. So when you go into a movie theater, you might get a ticket from the box office. You might see another person that rips the ticket. You might see an usher directing you to the auditorium. You might go to the concession stand, get something. You'll have interactions with four, five, sometimes six different employees On a regular showtime, none of those employees are tipped. So, for this to sort of also be economically viable for the hourly staff, you really do need to make sure the economics work on the concession side where the revenue isn't shared with a studio.
0: You know, I do these comparisons on a regular basis. People do bring up the fact that concessions are high, but tax is included in your price. So, you're not paying tax to your point, you're not paying tip, okay? And our venue. I would say a large majority, not all, but a large majority, more than 80%, don't have parking fees. So if you go to a stadium or a zoo or an amusement park, you're going to pay $10 or $15 or $20 to park. To your point, every time you buy something in you know, one of the venues, you're, you're going to leave a gratuity or a tip. So the net net, when it boils down to it, I still think the economics are very fair when going to movies. I had somebody ask me, Russ, I'll, I'll tell you this. I had somebody ask me uh, a few years ago why we charge so much and why is it so expensive. And I literally looked at that person and I said, tell me another entertainment venue uh, where it's less expensive. Right. And there was a long pause <laughs> and they thought about it. They said, well, I mean, they couldn't even go to the zoo. A ticket to the zoo is $12. They had to pay to park and the concession prices were higher. When you put it in that kind of perspective, you know, in relative terms, we're entertaining people for two and a half hours, and there's an expense for that. You know, even if it's you know fifteen dollars a person, ticket and concessions included, uh, it's not cheap. It's not as expensive as buying a ticket to a minor league baseball game.
1: <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. And you know, living in Los Angeles, where you just assume that you're going to pay a ten to twenty dollar parking surcharge on top of whatever you're doing. You know, pointing out the lack of parking fees for most movie theaters around the country is a very good point.
3: As we're looking at uh, not only the pricing, but also the role that concessions play for the movie going experience, I think a big factor in the new movie going experience of the last 10, 20 years has been the sort of value proposition, right? In terms of, okay, what am I getting for this fee, for this price? And I think an offshoot of that has seen a lot of circuits expand their own menus. So you're not only offering your staples of uh, popcorn, candy, soda, but you're going to uh, maybe convection ovens, hot food. My question for you, Larry, is when did this expanded F&B trend explode in in American exhibition? And how have cinemas sort of adjusted their designs to accommodate uh, this kitchen and oven space to sort of increase the value proposition of concessions?
0: Yeah, Daniel, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And when I say a long time, I'm talking about years. So here's, here's what I think the evolution is that took place. Back in the 90s, uh, someone came up with this grand idea to create uh, stadium seating. And that became the competitive point of action. Every theater had to move to uh, stadium seats or they were going to be out of business. And so it was a competitive mode. The same thing happened in the early 2000s with digital presentations. If you had digital presentations, you were far better than your competitor. And so it became a competitive advantage. And so everybody moved in that direction. And then we started this thing with recliners and then food and beverage followed. And so I think the revolution took place as a competitive sort of advantage. But I, I would like to define it a little bit differently. What we have to do is we have to understand our customer and what does our customer want to buy, okay? And I think what the customer ultimately wants to buy is uniqueness, or I'll say slash innovation. On the F side, they want something that's somewhat entertaining. They want it to fit the entertainment experience that they're in. I think that they want to buy something that has a high quality Of ingredients. They're looking for something that has substantial quality. And then they're looking for something that has, uh, I'll call it speed of service because of the entertainment. Again, I, I go back to the fact that they're not there for the food and beverage. They're there for the movie. They're there for that two and a half hour experience on the screen. When you start to think about why people expanded menus, the first crew, the first group, whoever the first person was, They were thinking of, how can I make my cinema more unique than anyone else? And so I'm going to offer a heavier menu. I'm going to offer more options. This is going to be unique. It's going to be innovative. And I think that was the process. The challenge then becomes, how do you keep it entertaining? How do you keep the quality as high as you possibly can? And how do you keep the speed of service up? You know, we've seen some individuals, some corporate Entities, some circuits meet some of those challenges, and then we've seen others that have not. And it's it's when we enter this new realm of expanded menus, we're now not only competing with ourselves, but we're competing with every restaurant or F and B operation in that locale, in that community. Because if you're not as good as those other locations and you don't meet the customer's expectations, then at that particular point, they start to question themselves. Well, you know, why do I want to go there and pay, you know, $15 for a burger when I can get a meal and then we can go in? I think the overall hope, the overall anticipation was that we want to keep people in the theater as long as possible. So if we can get them in there for two and a half hours for a movie and maybe hold them over an hour afterwards for some pastry and a coffee or get them in there an hour early for, you know, a burger fries and a beer, we're going to increase that revenue stream again. And there are challenges that go with that that don't pertain to your question, but your question really relates to how did we get to the point where we started these expanded menus? And I I think it was a competitive advantage and really trying to find a unique, innovative kind of way to make our theaters stand out.
2: I'm real spoiled now. I' getting to have a glass of wine or a cocktail with a movie. I don't. I don't. I don't want to go back. <laughs> 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 well, real, real tied in with with the issue of expanded F and B menus, of course, um, is the dine in cinema concept, which has just grown like crazy over over the past decade. Particularly, I mean, it, it started in Texas, which which now in the United States is where theaters are starting to open back up again. You know, like you said, you want to keep people in the theater as long as you can. So with dine-in, you have the benefit of the theater and the benefit of the restaurant together. Now, I mean, you have the safety concerns of the movie theater combined with the safety concerns of the restaurant. How do you think this this period of COVID is, is going to affect dine-in? Is, has it reached a saturation point? Is it going to continue expanding? How are they going to have to change how they operate?
0: That's a great question, by the way. And I think there were issues prior to COVID that started to emerge. I do think that there is something sanctimonious about being in that auditorium with the lights down, watching the movie, sipping on a soda, snacking on popcorn or candy. That's a different kind of culinary kind of experience. I use the word culinary because I'm going into, uh, Dine-In now is adding you know heavier items such as steaks and salads and and uh, Sundays and martinis, I don't think before COVID that people were enamored with the fact that uh, servers were climbing over people trying to serve. I think that probably was going to see a diminished kind of offering. Plus, it's very expensive for us as operators. I think that was already on the decline. Now, add to that the sterilization and the sanitary concerns that we're looking at, I don't think I want anybody climbing over me to hand someone else a meal or food. And so I think we'll end up going back to keeping hand-to-mouth kind of foods. I do think that we'll end up with what I'll call pickup service or pager service. So you can order whatever you like, but you will come to a particular pickup point, pick it up on a tray and have it brought to you or you take it back to your seat as opposed to having employees climbing all over folks. I do think that, you know, the transient piece of people moving constantly in and out of auditoriums is going to go away, you know, for multiple reasons that I've I've already described. One of them is sanitation, you know, one of them is safety, uh, and the other is it's just a nuisance to try to watch a movie while people are climbing over each other, trying to find a seat and eat and all of those kinds of things.
2: Another component of of uh, F and B and something that I've been interested in watching and, and wondering if you can speak to is, you know, it's it's not a good thing, but I don't think it's surprising or controversial to say that the movie theater industry is pretty high waste. I feel like in the last couple of years, mostly in in the art house theaters, uh, the smaller the smaller theaters, the smaller change. There's been more of a move to. You know, reusable utensils, and you know, you buy this special popcorn tub and you bring it in and get it refilled and you get a dollar off, getting things a little more green. And now I feel like we're seeing with safety concerns surrounding COVID, you know, no more reusable menus. You print them out and you throw them away, or you have a QR code menu or single use utensils made of like plastic or bamboo. And that's, you know, across that, that's that's, a, that's movie theater industry and other industries too. I mean, there are a ton of grocery stores that are actively discouraging people from bringing in reusable bags because it's not a sanitary. Do you think, is this going to be a long-term thing or are we going to go towards seeing more single-use plastics or is this a short-term solution?
0: That That is so interesting that you brought that up because I've been thinking about that, um, for the past seven days, as a matter of fact, because when we try to reopen, we're thinking about those kind of things. And I've written articles about moving from, say, plastic straws to corn silk straws or paper straws. And guess what? That now has moved to the bottom of the importance list. That's not quite as urgent as it was. And now here we are, we're placing safety, sanitation, and sterilization ahead of eco-friendly kind of practices. I think that there are some eco-friendly practices. For example, before COVID, we at Malco were moving more towards bamboo type of vessels to serve our uh, products in. So, for example, if we had, I'll call it hothouse shrimp, uh, it went in a bamboo boat with lettuce as opposed to any paper, uh, wax paper, plastics. So I think we are moving in that direction, but the supply chain is not prepared for us to do that. So that's going to be the other issue. And then when it gets down to straws, for example, we had moved to corn silk straws, but they were unwrapped and they were in the straw dispenser, you know, and you push the little tab and the straw comes out. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going back to plastic wrap straws because people want to know that that straw is sanitary. So, you know, you bring up a great point. Here we are. We moved for a couple of years, getting to eco-friendly, protecting the environment, and now... It looks like the urgency is protecting ourselves first and then the environment will follow.
2: Are we looking at the restaurant industry now? Because, I mean, I, I like going to Alamo Draft House and you get you get the popcorn in a gigantic metal bucket. Alamo is not open yet, but but possibly they're going to go towards, you know, not sharing metal buckets like that, going towards something disposable. But if you look at the restaurant industry, I mean, they're not they're not going to go towards, you know, single use everything indefinitely, that would cost way too much, right?
0: Uh yeah. I I think that the restaurant industry has something and Alamo Draft House probably has it also. I'm sure they do. They have dishwashers that sanitize everything. The question is once it's sanitized and is put in a dish rack, how safe is it until you use it again? Is it going to be wrapped individually and then the wrapper taken off and then you can use a ceramic plate or you know silverware? Those kinds of things. It's a great question. It's a you know, th- these are things that are just going to have to be worked out over time.
1: Do you predict a price point increase either on the ticket side or on the concession side to help with budgeting the additional labor that you think is going to be necessary uh, going forward?
0: Yeah, so that's going to be the next challenge. Um, I participated in a, a webinar, a Zoom call a couple of weeks ago, and the question was, Uh, We, as they asked us as operators, are you going to pass these new costs on for hand sanitizer and mask and all these new procedures that you're going to have to do? Are you going to pass that on to the guest right away or are you just going to absorb those costs? And I think the overall opinion was that we're going to absorb those costs. And I'll say for the first six months. But I think at some point that's going to have to be passed on to the guest. And so you're going to see an increase in prices and ticketing, and there's going to have to become some revenue recovery for those expenses. The question then becomes, what is that equilibrium? So right now, we're already accused or mentioned as having prices that are way too high and they're overwhelming. And so if you went up $2 on a $7 drink and started charging $9, how is that going to? Well, then you're not going to sell any drinks. So there is some equilibrium that's going to have to fall into place. I think it will, but it's going to take time. So I think, you know, to your point, I think for the first three months, six months, you know, whether it be 90 days, 180 days, the operators will absorb those costs. But I think you're going to see a rise in ticket prices in in November, and you'll see a rise, certainly a rise in concession prices.
1: Can you manage or or balance customer reactions to that with... Uh, transparency and messaging saying like, Hey, yeah, the price is higher. This is why.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the key. Uh, That's absolutely the key. And it's communication and it's clear transparency. Uh, I'll give you an example. In one of my seminars, I did at Malco, we did a test uh, three years ago. In April, we ran a promotion on Tuesdays that said, all you can eat popcorn for $4 and 75 cents. Now, asking you as an audience, does that sound like a good deal? All-you-can-eat popcorn for $4.75? Absolutely. Sounds like a good deal, right? We actually served in our theaters uh, the number one combo, which was a 44-ounce drink and 85-ounce popcorn with free refills while you were at the theater. So if you order all-you-can-eat popcorn, what do you need to go with that? Large drink. So you pay five bucks. So you take the $4.75 and the $5, you put those two together. It was $9.75. Guess what the cost for our combo was? $9.75. So what you have to do, I think, is you have to basically bear down on what the real value is. People are eating snacks, popcorn for two and a half hours. And so eating popcorn for two and a half hours for $4.75 is not expensive but they will complain about a $9 and 75 cent combo. So you have to figure out how to communicate that. I do this with my students at the university of Memphis. We have a large popcorn tub at Malco and you get free refills, but it's $7. And I ask each one of the students to go to a Starbucks, a Kroger's an Albertsons, any grocery store and buy a three ounce pre-packaged popcorn and bring it to class and bring me the receipt because I will reimburse them. Do you know how many packages of popcorn it takes to fill the large tub? Anywhere from 13 to 14. Do you know what it costs per bag of popcorn for that three ounce prepackaged snack bag? $1.69. You do the math, okay? To fill one of the tubs from a retail operation, it costs $16, $17, $18. We charge 7 The general public thinks we charge too much. The reason we card $7 is because we're feeding you for two and a half hours. We're not feeding you for three or four or five, six
3: minutes. We usually like to finish each episode with a couple of uh, memories or a couple of our favorite aspects of going to the movies. Obviously, right now that uh, we're all on a break. So um, I'm going to start with you, Larry, and then maybe Russ and Rebecca can, can chime in as well. What are your favorite movie theater concessions?
0: Okay. So I'm a little bit biased. I I try to eat as healthy as possible. So uh, for my friends at Coca-Cola, I always drink a liter of Dasani water. And then I'm a proponent of chocolate almonds and popcorn. And then since I'm a foodie, I always have to go for like a super nacho or I'll go for one of our um, fire oven uh, pizzas. So if I can't have chocolate almonds I kind of go towards the pizza or the loaded nachos.
1: For me, it's, uh, you know, it it depends. It's honestly, as a child, my favorite thing was Junior Mints. I don't know why that became my thing, but every once in a while, that's still the nostalgia choice for me. But beyond that, it's honestly, if I go to anywhere, any sort of dine-in theater that has a pretzel, I love the Alamo Draft House pretzel, the South Lamar location in Austin still has my favorite, but like the newer LA Theater has a good one. That's always my choice in part because it's quiet, you know. You can eat a pretzel this that's soft Baked
3: pretzel. Oh, that's crucial. You don't you don't want to crunch on something during uh, like a dialogue-heavy scene.
1: Exactly. So you're not interrupting yourself. You're not interrupting the people around you. Uh, so that's a, a, you know, personally, I, I it's what I want to eat, but it has that side benefit as well.
2: I'm a chips and queso person. It can be the the good, you know, the good high quality stuff, or the you know bright neon orange sludge. I don't even care. I'll eat it, but. Yeah, I do love everything about it except the trying to engineer how to eat a chip without it crunching. <laughs> I haven't figured. So if someone figures out a crunchless chip for movie theaters, and I think that would be really good.
3: That's gonna be that's gonna be I think <laughs> the, the innovation of the century on on the concession side. We might have to bring Larry back on uh, when that happens. <laughs> I think, like Larry is saying, it really depends on on what type of experience you want, right? Uh, when I'm back home in Mexico at, at either Cinepolis or Cinemex, the spicy popcorn, I think it's a must. That's just a, a big part of the experience there. When I'm here in, in New York, uh, Rebecca, this is something we've bonded over. The, the tater tots at, at the Nighthawk locations, I think, are yes. just the best... Tater tots in the city, uh Barnon.
2: Drenched in cheese. Wonderful. Just it's, it's,
3: it's a wonderful uh companion. This is gonna make me so hateable. I think that the word in Spanish for what I'm about to say is is fresa, which translates into like preppy and bougie. But uh if you want a really different uh movie going snacks experience at an IPIC, splurge for the bottle of champagne and get the truffle fries. And it's going to be a very expensive uh, spend at the concession stand, but a very sort of unique flavor combination uh, as you're going to the movies. Again, for a completely different way to experience a, a night out at the movies and a reflection of how the concession stand is really evolving beyond the staples of uh, popcorn, soda, and candy.
2: Do you dip the triple fries into the champagne?
3: I'm not that perverted. Let's let's, let's take it one <laughs> no. paycheck at a time. Not here.
2: that brave. One, one paycheck <laughs> at
3: a time. Come on, I'm still a journalist.
0: that was great you know it is interesting you brought the truffle fries up because at our powerhouse location we started selling truffle fries and it's become one of our number one items
3: oh man get get the get the sparkling wine and suggest it in the combo it's it's really really good uh you know it's a sort of movie going snack that'll make you seem like the most uh you know alienatable person on the planet when you
1: say it out loud but it's really good
2: i haven't had lunch yet this part of the conversation is killing me it's killing me (laughs)
1: Larry, thanks so much for joining us. This has been fantastic.
2: Always a pleasure, Larry.
0: Thanks. Well, hey, listen, it's it, the pleasure is mine. I really like hanging out with you guys and, and hearing your perspectives and your questions uh, about the industry. That was great. Uh,
1: Rebecca, Daniel, thank you. It's great to talk to you guys again. Uh, glad that we can all do this uh, every week.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: You guys stay safe. And everyone, thank you for listening. This is the Box Office Podcast. Uh, please subscribe to the show, rate us, and share us with your friends. You can find uh, the Box Office Podcast on virtually every podcast catcher of your choice. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and Bradley Dunham and written and hosted by Daniel Luria and me, Russ Fisher, and this week with special guest Rebecca Polly.